This podcast is brought to you by CDKeyOffers.com. Use offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows codes and die shrink for 3% off everything on the website. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today, well, as I do every day, I will let my guest introduce himself. Hey, everyone. My name is Paxton Galvanic, and I am the HR and Operations Director at Funcom, video game developer. Been around for about 28 years or so now. So, yeah, that's me. Yeah, and I, you know, I met you at the uh, Carolina Game Summit, which... Um, I was, I guess, according to them, a celebrity YouTuber coming in for the show. And um, really, my goal was to re- just meet as many people who actually work on games, program for games, write for games, and manage studios like you do. I mean, why don't you... Uh, it was funny. I was talking to someone who was in charge of rigging at Funcom, um, which, if I remember correctly, I I, I hope I do, you know someone makes a model for a character. So she was in charge of actually like putting the bones in that model and so that it all lines up correctly, which didn't even occur to me you need to do, but of course you do. Yep, that's her job. Her strictly a rigger. That's what she does. And she makes sure that things look normal when they move and she puts the structure to our animation. So, yeah. But it's funny, you said you were kind of in charge of more managing the studio and you and you almost seemed like you weren't sure if I'd be interested in that. And it, never know what people want to hear and what they don't want to hear. I don't know. So, Well, it's it's funny, though, because it's like, I don't know that I've ever heard a conversation on a podcast with someone who actually manages a studio and can, like, talk about what that entails. Yeah, normally people talk to, like, a developer, like the lead developer or creative director that talks about a game, or you'll, you'll talk to um, possibly, yeah, so somebody you know, that is in the trenches, like a producer of some sort. So uh, my job is to just keep the studio running. And I, I work globally. So I, I do everything with the studio that has to do with operations and human resources. I build the teams. I, I deal with admin, like I do facilities. I, I do, I do everything. I just, I make sure everybody's happy. I do our, uh, our culture. I make sure we have an awesome culture at Funcom. So uh, I kind of handle all of that. So it's, it's just different. Yeah, you're right. People don't normally interview somebody that is kind of like a general manager of a studio so yeah well you know there's been a lot of which is very curious because you see all of this and i put it in quotes reporting on like what's going on at like rockstar or activision blizzard all of these studios and it seems like all you ever get is anonymous sources of one guy who is programming and what his opinion is it's like has anyone ever bothered to actually talk about what it even takes to run a studio in general before you approach what a culture is at a studio? Uh, people don't normally talk to us. We just do our hardest to keep things running, to build great teams, to keep the lights on. I mean, that's that's our job. And people don't normally approach us and ask us those type of things. Our job is just to keep it going, keep growing, and keep making things happen and make the best environment that we possibly can for our, our employees. So that's what I do every day. So let me back up then. I assume you play video games, right? Oh yeah. So I, I'm kind of curious. What what was 
What got you, what was some of your earliest memories of getting into gaming? Did you like have a PS2? Were you on a Oh man, I'm older than that. <laughs> I'm way older than that. Yeah, yeah, I'm in my I'm in my 40s. So I I I grew up with an Atari in my house and I played games like Activision's Pitfall and I pl- I mean I played those type of games when I was a small kid and I remember in 1987 getting the first Nintendo and that changed everything for me. I I played The Legend of Zelda and I thought to myself, I can't believe I could go on these quests in a video game and get different mm-hmm. weapons and 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 grow my character. It was like the first RPG kind of game I've mm-hmm. ever seen and I loved it. Then after that I I was hooked. I played PC games. I played games like King's Quest and Space Quest and and uh I played uh Ultima Online. I I mean I was playing older games and i i mean i loved video games i bought i did pc i did console i got a i bought a playstation one to get final fantasy 7 that's mm-hmm. why i bought that that system so i grew up through the 80s 90s 2000s even now in gaming i buy all the consoles i can try all the games out i can i, I love video games it's it shaped my life so um yeah that's <laughs> i would say zelda legend of zelda is one of the, the biggest contributing factors to me opening my eyes to video games and what it can do and what it can't do so yeah and i guess that's probably right from the perspective of i mean before that comparing something like zelda where it's like well this is you know this is a world this isn't like a ball moving across the screen yeah it was different. It was. I was. It was something I could explore. You're right. I was. I was playing side scrollers or just simple games like Asteroids and Space Invaders and things that I was like, okay, it's a skill based game. But now I'm playing a game where I can go on these quests and go into this world, and it just changed my my vision of gaming, and I loved it. So I got hooked ever since then. So I uh, I play games to this day. I I have an Xbox Series X at home. I've got a PlayStation. I have a PC. So I I, I play everything I possibly can. Would you so. say you primarily game? game on pc at this point or or did you always mostly game on pc or what for work i have to game we we design most of our games for for steam x uh, the uh, epic store those type of things but we also do console so that's why i have everything but um i play on the xbox now because my i have three brothers we all like to play games together we play destiny 2 mm-hmm. we tried anthem we we play games together and i like the fact that i could throw a headset on play with my brothers throw on it like play a little overwatch if i wanted to whatever it may be and uh it's just fun to do with my my brothers so i do consoles for more of a sit down and just hang out with with friends and family when i sit down on my pc i do our games for game development. That's when I that's when I play test games. So I I do that. You wouldn't think, oh, a general manager play test games. Yeah, I play test all of our games. We have we have so many games in the works right now that I I'm like, okay, what's going on with that that roguelike game? What are we doing with the rhythm based shooter? And like, I could talk about all these games later on if you want. But um, I use my PC to test test the games that we're building now. Is this something that happened more over time as you got into game development where you migrated more to kind of like play on a console just because it's in a different room from where you work? Like, did you I'm guessing you used to play on PC a lot more, right? I did. I actually ran a clan of people doing World of Warcraft, and I, I uh, we had a game America's Army put out by the U.S. Army. I ran a guild of people on that, and uh, I, we were pretty popular during doing first-person shooters we played battlefield all these other games that was all pc based so i did that from you know 
2002 to mm-hmm. 2010 ish. I was, I, I was on my PC, but then, you know, I, I started to have kids and it was like, okay, I want to just get away from everything. So I started to get more into console where I'm like, I've got four kids now. So it's like, okay, they do their own thing. I want to just go to the bonus room and sit down in front of my Xbox and just veg out for a little bit. So I got back into consoles to, uh, to just escape for a little bit. I'd say that. Well, I guess this is probably a good generation to be doing that, right? I'm, now that we're on the subject, I kind of want to ask you this early on too. Like, what do you think of this console generation? Because from my perspective, it's far, it's more impressive than the last one. Now's a good time, right? Oh yeah, the the games coming out, the people that are are playing the games. I mean, I like the console generation. I mean, our studio is kind of moving to a console first mentality. Like, mm. how does it feel when you put a controller in your hand? A lot of the games I'm playing that we're developing lately, I throw my my xbox mm-hmm. controller right into my pc and i i sit there and i try it out with a controller so um we're designing more for that because it's it, the culture's it's great nowadays i mean it's uh, i love being part of it so yeah now let me ask you this because you brought up the controller i've always felt like pretty much every game obviously maybe not an rts needs to use a controller and maybe you know you would expect someone in a fighting game to use a controller not a keyboard and mouse but like what do you think about br- keyboard and mouse on console? Because I know a lot of PC gamers would game more on console if they could use a keyboard and mouse. And it's it's interesting. Let me give you some. I've assumed up until now that up until about a month ago that basically every console game had to have mouse and keyboard controls somewhere in an INI file that they turned off. Why don't they just let us have yeah. it on console? But I talked to a developer at Sony Santa Monica, and he's like, no. It actually doesn't. Even on our dev kits, even on PCs running a build of God of War, you have to plug in a PS5 controller or you cannot move the character at all. And so I guess that's not necessarily true. Like how... Not true, yeah. It's not. You just, you have to reprogram it. Like we, I have a team of people at Funcom. There are systems and console programmers that their job is to kind of take what we're doing and make sure that it works on the uh, the Xbox and the PlayStation. And even on the Switch, we, we're doing Switch games. And that's a whole different piece. That's like programming on phones. So when you have these like beautiful AAA quality games and you're like, okay, we have to throw it on the Switch. It's like, okay, let's let's do what we can to make this thing work. But because um, the processing power just isn't there with a Switch. But regardless, I have a team of people that will take the code and make sure that it works properly on consoles, that it's optimized, that the the actual you know buttons work, it's, it's working properly. So well, so here's the thing though, you'd be surprised. Some games actually do support keyboard and mouse on console. Like what was it, uh, Zombie Army Four? I just saw on the menu uh, on a PS4, it said uh, keyboard and mouse on, and I'm like, what? And I just plugged it in, and it just worked exactly like a yeah. PC. And I was like. All right, so it is. So I, I it guess it must be there for some of them. Yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering then, like, if if that's something you've thought about, just putting keyboard and mouse on all. I'm probably not Switch, but all other consoles yeah. for Xbox and PlayStation. It, it's a valid option. I mean, sure. I, I the more that we can grow our base of of gamers that that will play our game, the better. So if that's an option, I mean, we could definitely look into that and see if it's something that you know people are looking for. I mean, that that's the whole thing with game development. You try to find out what people want and just gear your things toward them. And what can we do to make things better, to get capture mm-hmm. the biggest audience, to make things easiest? And yeah, that, that could be something that we look into. I'm not saying we do it now, but it could be something <laughs> in the future. You're not saying it's officially confirmed, but I, I just, right. I always see that because like for a, 
I would say my channel is most PC-centric. I mostly game on PC. But I've never been afraid to talk about consoles. It's never. I've always just been like, it's just another gaming device. Why not talk about it every now and then? And right now, at least compared to, especially, I mean, with the shortages going on for graphics cards. That's so frustrating for us. I can't even find them for my employees. It's horrible. Well, so. But yeah, but I'd say a lot of people want to move to console, so, or at least temporarily with these rising prices. It's like, well, if this is, you know, $400 or even like 350 Xbox Series S, they're like, man, if this could just have a keyboard and mouse, I, I, I would just use this for Intel prices come down. Yep, absolutely. But yeah, that's that's a valid point. Let's start it there. Like, when did you realize this was going to be? Because it's happened before. There's been shortages before. But like, when did you guys see it as a huge issue? Was it earlier this year? It's with crypto. No, it was, it's been a year and a half with cryptocurrencies and, and bit mining. I mean, it's we realized it a year and a half ago when when the prices started going up and we're like, why can't we get our you know normal Nvidia cards? I mean, we're trying to get you know the 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 3070s, the 3080s, the 3090s, whatever. Like, we can't find them. And the better graphics cards that we have, the better games that we can make and the faster our animators can can animate things and the faster our game designers can design things. So we need the best graphics cards in our machines and we can't find them. So we're going through all avenues, you know, reaching out to NVIDIA and, and whoever it may be and trying to find where we can get these cards. I would say it's been, I would say it's been a year and a half, year and a half at least that we've been struggling trying to find a good quantity of video cards, GPUs. And uh, and this is connected to a question my friend Brock had, which is just like, when does a studio, I'm, I want to make sure I think of even how to say this, like, not only like, when do you guys decide to upgrade, but how do you decide what to upgrade to? Because I know like, you'll see some studios and it's like, oh, they just have like, like I, I've seen like at CD Projekt, um, like they'll just have like three thirty nineties in a rig. And it's like, that's what we're testing this on. And it's like, but it it's like, is that what you're doing though? Because... Is that what most people have, you know? Is that a good idea to test it on something that much more powerful than like a 120 teraflop system isn't what most people have? Yeah, we have different we have different systems all over our office to test things. Um no, we don't have a system with with 33090s in it. <laughs> so when we upgrade our things, honestly, we'll look at our our team and be like, "What are you currently running and do we can we get something better than that?" That's pretty much what we're at now is like, "What can yeah. we find?" I mean, we're we're like any other person looking at retail. I mean, it, you'd think a video game studio would be have some special ins. We try, but a lot of our our distributors are like, we can't even find them. Like they're they're hard to come by. And this even goes for consoles. Um, for, at Funcom, we have an initiative where we want people to play consoles. We give every employee a next gen system, so hmm. you could take home a PlayStation Five, an Xbox Series X, or a Switch if you wanted to. This is a good we, ad for applying to work at your company right now. Yeah, it, thanks, um, but. It's all about the like work-life balance and culture fit, making sure one of our pillars is like be the gamer. That's what we want. We want people to love video games mm -hmm. and be able to play on different systems. So we want to be able to have them take home a system that they could try out. If they work on a PC all day, it'd be nice if they can just go home and have an Xbox Series X or a PlayStation 5 at home that they could try things out. We can't even find enough PlayStation 5s to give to our employees. I, I, I think that I probably have 30 or 40 employees that are sitting there waiting on a system that I've announced 
eight months ago. This is our initiative. We want to do this. I cannot find them. I have my ops and admin team every day going onto to Twitter, seeing the restocked you know, Twitter yeah. feeds and seeing... You're seeing doing the exact page. same thing yeah. the normal consumer is to try to get Seriously, your employees. We're a game development studio. Like We can't even find PlayStations and Xboxes. It, it's crazy to me. Um, I've, I've called up Best Buys and Targets, and I, I, I've reached out to Sony, and they're just like, we have our distributors, and that's where we send them, and you have to go through them. So... You'd think we get some special perks having 260 employees that all want Xboxes or Playstations, but we, we don't get that. So, You know, it's funny, too, because I think a lot of people would assume you get special treatment. Like, they would hear you give all of your employees a PS5, and it's like, must be nice. And it's like, well, yeah, but also, we're going through just as much effort <laughs> as you Absolutely. guys. And I have to, too. You know, I'm not a giant YouTube channel, or at least I, I'm not one that gets sent free stuff. I think... I get hate when I review a graphics card sometimes. Like, why are you rubbing it in? And it's like, I actually had to try pretty hard to get that card to review you guys. <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah. just our, your job to use it, you know. Absolutely. But notice the uh, PS5 isn't used for mining, and that's hard to get as well. I mean, I don't know if you saw this report came out about how many GPUs were shipped in the prior quarter. Like, shipments were up 40% year over year or something crazy. Like, million, like 20 million cards have been shipped. And yeah. and there's it's like where are they? <laughs> I mean, apparently like, people want to play video games right now. You know, it could be anonymous. Writes in just like people who support Morris Laws on Patreon can do, and he asks, "Hey, Tom and Paxton, Dune game, is it going to be good?" The David Lynch film was god awful, which I didn't even realize <laughs> David Lynch made that. Usually, he makes pretty good stuff. Uh, but in theory, I'm all in for a high concept sci fi world with rich lore. Sell me on it. Sell you on it. Okay. So Funcom has teamed up with Legendary Pictures. This is not a movie tie-in game. We have a <laughs> yeah. we have a relationship with Legendary Pictures where we have to produce three Dune games over the six-year time span since we signed the contract. So we have to do three Dune games. They're putting a lot of money and effort and resources into this Dune franchise. It is going to be huge. I will tell you that the movie is absolutely amazing. Um, I know people that have seen it. We were on site. I was going to ask. You've seen it then. I have not personally seen it. Um, we were on site, though, in Europe while they were shooting it. Mm -hmm. Our team went out to Europe, so we were on site because our game has to feel like it's in the same universe as the movie. It, like I said, it's not a movie tie-in, so we're not following Paul Atreides and his journey, learning mm -hmm. about Arrakis. And, and so it's set within, let's say, this, the same century, but it's not that storyline. We are building an open-world persistent survival game on Arrakis. That's what we're building. So you can drop onto the sand planet and you need to survive and you can decide whether you want to be, you know, an Atreides or a Fremen or whatever you want to be in the game. You survive, you harvest, you build, you grow. We're going to have vehicles and weapons and raiders. And I mean, it, it, we're taking kind of the best practices that we learned from Conan Exiles, our survival game, putting that into Dune and making it a thousand times better. So you're going to be able to jump in an ornithopter and fly around this, this, you know, crazy looking ship, which is, if you could see this video behind me, there's mm -hmm. a concept art piece behind me, but, um, you're going to be able to fly around and you're going to be able to see these worms, these huge sandworms come out of the ground and uh, spice blooms and all these things. It's, it's all going to be in the game for you to decide whether you want to harvest. If you want to raid other players, it's going to have PVP, PVE. So it's, it's just an open world persistent survival game set in that world um, for next gen systems. Yeah. So 
I, the, the immediate question that comes to mind when you talk about it is, because I don't honestly know how this works, like, how did you guys get the rights to Dune? Like, who was, com- was there other studios competing with you for those rights? Did they, did Legendary reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? I'm very curious, like, how this happens. There, yeah, there's other studios that were competing with it. So, Funcom, we own the digital rights to a lot of pretty famous IPs. Like, we've been known for Conan. We own mm. the digital rights to Conan the Barbarian. So, we've done games like Conan Exiles, Age of Conan. Um, we had uh, Conan Unconquered, which was an RTS game that we worked with Petroglyph on, the old, uh, the, the old guys from uh, Las Vegas um, that did Command and Conquer. Uh, those guys, they formed Petroglyph. So, they worked with us on Conan Unconquered. We have a new game coming out called Conan Chop Chop, which is a roguelike game, a four-player roguelike game. So, we... We have a lot of IPs at Funcom that we own. We own um, Solomon Kane. We own things like Mutant Year Zero, Mutant Chronicles. Like We own the digital rights to those games with Cabinet Entertainment. So we've gotten into the business of understanding what it's like to own an IP. Mm-hmm. And we, we kind of talked to Legendary. We knew that they were taking on the Dune franchise and we said we would love to have the digital rights and work with you on creating the games for that universe we've been proven on conan exiles here's what we've done with all these other games and they saw what we can do um and then they we we gained the rights to to doing the dune games. so and was this when you you know realized it was being starting production a few years ago or like how does that you know was it like oh uh, Dennis Villanova is making this. He's the, and just so everyone knows, he's the director of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. So I'm excited for the movie for that reason alone. That was one of my favorite movies of all time. He's an amazing director, and honestly, the cast that they have oh, yeah. on this movie it it blows things out of the water with you know Oscar Isaac and Jason Momoa and Josh Brolin and Daya. I mean, you name it. I mean, it's a star studded cast. I I hate to say this, and I'm a Star Wars fan. I feel like it's going to be kind of like. This, the next Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I and that's that's a bold statement. So is that what you said though? Did someone at Funcom say that when they when it came out that they were making this movie and immediately you guys reached out to them and other game studios did and then they picked you? Is that how that worked then? Yeah, yeah. So we had to okay. we had to pitch. Um, we pitched ourselves to them, but they they knew that this was going to be a franchise that's going to have characters and toys and games it's it's going to be a universe it's not just like oh yeah a, oh we're just going to do a, a movie and that's it i mean there's probably going to be multiple movies and and you you name it and spinoffs you let's see how this this goes this first one but i will tell you it is an amazing movie um some people have seen it so it, it's it actually gets released in norway in september which is crazy because we don't get to see it here in the u.s until october 22nd uh so they get to see it a month early which is normally yeah. the way around normally the european you know countries get to see it a month later but they get to see it next month or within the next couple of days or two or three weeks i'd say so so when you pitched them you said you secured three games and i think i asked you this when i was there in person in carolina yeah. uh, north carolina um, I, I, you know, I, I'm kind of curious how that works with a pitch. Cause you said the first one's an open world online survival game and you won't, right. and you, I don't think you can say what the next ones will be yet, but it sounds like, I think a lot of studios would have just said, we're going to make a trilogy, you know, that's what we're going to do. Oh, no. And you came in and it sounds like pitched several types of games and I can see why they would have given it to you for an online survival game. You did Conan. So it makes yep. it a match. 
Yeah, we also are a publisher, so we have great relationships with other development studios. Like we published Mutant Year Zero with the Bearded Ladies, so that that was a very popular game that was on Xbox Game Pass. I mean, it it was a popular game. Um, we did Moons of Madness, like we've teamed up with other studios so they knew that we not only have had experience with ips we've worked with other development studios and published games but we can internally develop games so it was like the best of all worlds i would say you know like okay if they decide to you know do some publishing projects with dune great and if they decide to do some internally great they know how to do that and they know how to work with ips and they know how to keep things kind of standardized and stay within the ip realm and, mm -hmm. and work with us so it, it was just a lot of the stars aligned to make this one work properly for us right and i think this is kind of re-asking some of the things i've said but i just want to read it to get it out there. So Castro writes and he says, hello, Paxton and Tom. Regarding games for Dune, Frank Herbert provided a wealth of source material and seven novels for the settings of these games. What sort of research and decision making occurs between executives and game developers to agree to such a project? What goes into a pitch meeting for securing the rights? Paxton, are you prepared to drink the water of life and face the inevitable <laughs> subreddit combing through and debating the novels versus the game? But I think that's, I'm curious about that too. Like, did the people at Legendary say, hey, this is where it's set, so we need the first game to take place in the same realm of a timeline? Or, and did you, like, how much research was, I'm sure a lot, but I, I don't know. I would imagine some studios might have not done as much research as others. Like, you know, like... I will tell you, Dune is extremely popular with our executives at Funko. They they okay. knew about the books. They read the books. They were familiar with the IP beforehand. It was a popular IP that most people knew about. Our CEO, Rui, loves the Dune universe and, and Frank Herbert. So that that is something that we already had established that we understood the IP. A lot of our key people understood it. So we didn't really have to sell that as much. Um, the rest of the studio, there's people that, you know, with 260 employees, not everybody has read the books or seen the movies. And, uh, you know, we had to share that with the rest of the team. But just so you know, we've been in pre-production with this game for about a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. Just so you know, timeline-wise, it, it could be a three-plus-year production cycle on this this game we'll we'll see what happens um we're not announcing our release date yeah. for it um good choice do have i other, think lately yes. too many people announce release yeah. dates oh early. yeah no, no no we're not we're not announcing that and i mean funcom has historically reached out to our customers and our gamers and asked them what they want to see so we've done early accesses and and we've done alpha testing and beta testing and that's the key to game development and i know that there was a question about that like uh um yeah i'll read it yeah see. qh freddy writes yeah, in ahead. and he goes hi guys i i was gonna do that next actually i was gonna go ahead read, read it off and I'll, I'll talk about this he goes i feel like many games fall short of their goals and many series get derailed when they lose track of what makes them engaging and enjoyable to play and often it seems like neither the devs or the community can really pin down why something went wrong do you think there's often a fundamental misunderstanding by both sides as to what systems or gameplay and plot elements actually make a game fun or is it that there are flaws in the planning or management goals ambitions and how people want to go about achieving those there is absolutely a disconnect. You've seen that in a lot of games that have been released lately where it's not exactly what the player wants to see. Um, I will tell you, we've realized this at Funcom. We've been around for 28 years. We know that some of the games we've released in the past aren't what everybody wants. Every game studio develops things differently. It may have yeah. come from a, a, a design director or a creative director that came up with a concept, but you have people that 
want to change things that think that they know what's best for the game and the community that you may have a publisher that's putting pressure on you to do this this and monetize it this way and you may have a programming team that says we can't do things that you're asking for but this is what we can do so all of a sudden this game that you had a vision for morphed into something that wasn't necessarily what you planned on because of all these contributing factors so it changes the way that the game was intended or even the, the the core of the game may not have been good to begin with you never know yeah. so i think a lot of studios need to find out what makes a game fun and what people are looking for that's the key to it before investing time effort money into this you need to make sure is this game fun is this something that people will want to play and then test it um i will tell you we released um at Funcom, we were we've been working on Conan Exiles now for three plus years, and we just released the Isle of Sipta. It was a DLC. We did an early access, and we asked the community, "What do you think of this?" We we put together this new map, this the, you know new enemies, new 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 things to explore. What do you think? They came back to us with some pretty creative and insightful feedback on what we were doing, and we morphed the game and we changed things, and we ended up releasing it, you know, a couple weeks ago, and it got received a lot better than it did when we initially did the um, the early access. So we listened to what they had to say, we changed, and we gave them what they were looking for. And I think that's the biggest thing is making sure that you understand what people want and giving them what they're, they're looking for. So Well, and yeah, I want to bring this up too, because I think it's a fascinating subject that I don't hear enough people discuss. And it's kind of like, it just feels like half the time you'll see games come out that were riding the coattails of a trend, but that kind of worked, I think, well in the 90s when a game took a year to make. If a game takes four years to make and it's based on, like, what was it, all the, I don't know, rock band spinoffs, and it's like, hey, guys, people are done buying guitars to play games yeah. and you're way yep. too late to make this. And Battle Royale is another one. I know that Halo Infinite started as a Battle Royale and they decided mid-development, oh, no, 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 no. Same thing with um, Returnal. That wasn't a Battle Royale, but they were going to make one. And they said the game was mostly done and they said, this isn't, we're, we're not going to beat you know, any of these other games that are way bigger than us. So why are we, you know, like it's too late. To, it's too late to jump on the, on, on the bandwagon on that one. So you have to try to, you have to try to make something great early on and be innovative um, with Funcom. You know, there's a lot of survival games out there and we're trying mm -hmm. to position ourselves being one of the, the best survival game development companies. That's what that's what we're going for at Funcom. Persistent online survival games. We've proven that with Conan Exiles. How can we make that better? Um, but we also publish different types of games. But internally, we know survival games, and that's what we want to be making. So we're hoping that this next this Dune game that we're making is the the genre defining survival game we're hoping that it's going to be the big one because i feel like everybody's waiting for like this amazing survival game you know there was velheim and there was you know ark and rust and i mean there there's some good survival games out there um but there's not one that you're like that is the one and we're hoping that we're, we're going to be making the one for this that that people can kind of say wow every survival game should have this and these skill trees mm. and and this type of ability that you can do and i mean we're hoping to be making that well so I, I guess I want to kind of discuss if you have one, an example of where something has gone wrong, because 
And it doesn't need to be a whole game, but I'm curious, is there a game you guys started once and you were like, oh, half a year in, you know what? This just isn't going to pan out. Because I've heard of a lot, some studio, people from studios talk about, like I know at Insomniac, before they made Ratchet and Clank, they were making like some mystic Amazon warrior game. And they were just yeah. like given the advice, apparently from the producers at Sony that said, we don't feel like this is going to do well. If you are sure it is, make it. And then they eventually canceled it because they're like, we're not having fun playing it. What are we make, insisting on making this? Like, DLC, anything. Like, is there an example you can give like that? Oh, yeah, man. Honestly, this happens at almost every mid to large studio that you you have something in the works. Mm-hmm. You may be prototyping something. You may have something in pre-production and you are trying to find out if it's fun, if it works. This happens all the time. And I will say that we, we have shelved things and we've put things for for later. Um, I'll give an example mm-hmm. in North Carolina. Uh, when I joined about four years ago, we were developing a four-player co-op sci-fi shooter. That's what we were building in North Carolina. It was with one of the IPs mm-hmm. that we owned. It was a sci-fi four-player shooter, very similar to um, a Left for Dead kind of mm-hmm. thing, but but just a little bit different. We were building that, so we started pre-production, and then we were just starting to get into production. But we were trying to find what made our game different and what made our game fun. And we kept trying different things. And it ended up at the end of the day that we we're like, it's just not fun enough. And we just, it's not, it just doesn't have that, that thing that makes it different. And then the Dune thing came along and we said, okay, we need to shift focus. Let's shelve this game that we had a small team on, shelve it for a little while. We can come back to it, but all hands on deck for Dune. And we're, we've been, co-developing this dune game with all of our different studio locations and we have five locations now in portugal and norway and and sweden and uh, romania so we have all these locations now working on this one title um we had to shelve that game so we didn't find the fun in it we or we didn't find the fun as we were calling it um and we've pivoted a few times where we tried to figure that out but it was shelved and and it was just like this is going to be a sci-fi co-op shooter it's, it, yep. you know, once you're playing it, you're like, is this really doing anything that another game hasn't done was the question. Right. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. We, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't different. It wasn't defining. It was like, is this just going to be like the rest of the, the four player co-op shooters? You know, is it going to be like, uh, oh, there's a fantasy one that we were looking at. I forget the name of it now. Um, yeah. But just like a Left for Dead, there, there's just a lot of those four player co-op shooters. And we were like, well, how could we be different? Yeah. It could be in a sci-fi setting. There's not a lot of sci-fi four player co-op shooters, but you know, we were trying to just be different and we weren't finding it. So we shelved that game for a little bit. And that happens at every studio. I mean, we, We've done that a few times and, you know, our core teams will still work on the money-making games, the Conan Exiles and our, our live games that we, we still supported, you know, Secret World Legends and Age of Conan. We have teams of people working on them, but, you know, we have, we have to have a prototyping team that's making the next great thing and trying things out. And a lot of studios will have those type of teams put together and, and prototyping and, and pre-producing things and seeing if it works and if it doesn't work. So you can't, you can't put all your eggs in one basket. That's, I guess that's the lesson. A lot of studios have gone under. And some studios have, yeah. They've gone under. I, I used to work with, um, I used to work with a team at Bosky. Uh, I helped them out for a little while. Cliff Lazinski's company, great team of people, super talented, core group of senior uh, game developers they put all their eggs in one basket with the lawbreakers game like two years ago um it was a shooter it just had a high learning curve it didn't do very well and that studio went under um i ended up hiring a lot of people from bosky because they were local to to me in in the raleigh area but that's just one example of a studio that that took all their eggs put it in the one basket thought that 
the game couldn't fail instead of having a mm. team of people that were prototyping the next thing and trying things out and trying to find out what what the next fun thing is so um yeah i'm looking at the but, lawbreakers now it's funny i i, I and i don't mean it i don't try mean it. i don't remember this game or i think i might vaguely remember it and it says it's a hero shooter and i'm like oh well there's competition there if you try to oh it got released right when overwatch was like yeah at the peak so it's like okay we're competing with overwatch and this had a much higher learning curve and a skill yeah, skill curve so it was like it took you a while to kind of figure things out so it was an amazing game and it was the team that worked on it like i said there are top class people that worked at, at a lot of different AAA companies that came to make this game it just it wasn't the right time for that game it had a lot of competition that studio couldn't didn't have anything else in the pipeline so it went under and i i feel horrible and i, I love a lot of the guys that worked at that studio but that's just an example of like you have to you have to try new things and figure out what works and what doesn't work. So, Odiv Kurtz writes in, I hope I said that right. It's clearly not an English name. He goes, hello, Paxton. Can I ask, what are your thoughts on CDPR's Cyberpunk 2077 fiasco? In my eyes, it is one of the worst cases of a disconnect between marketing people and actual developers. I also want to ask whether, in your opinion, the quality checking of games has truly degraded over the past decade. Last three or four years, we've had multiple instances where big AAA studios announced their next big titles only for them to be incredibly unpolished on launch like cyberpunk fallout 76 anthem and mass effect andromeda just to name a few so i guess there's two questions there let's start with cyberpunk cyberpunk uh yes there was 100 a disconnect between marketing the development studio and um you know when you work on a game for so long you want to get it out there and it comes to a point where you're like we've dumped so much money into this game can we can we push ourselves to get to that finish line and i think they had every intention on on polishing it at the end and they just they may have had too many features that they didn't decide to cut or they mm -hmm. they may have not spent enough time in qa obviously it it takes a lot to polish something once you have a game in place it takes a, a big team of of quality assurance people and sometimes it takes time to to fix all those bugs that you're finding and they just didn't give themselves enough time they they talked to marketing and they they had their release date and they stuck to it and they didn't give themselves enough time to fix the bugs that's that's what happened there and it that game could have been something absolutely amazing it really it the whole premise and what they were mm. building was amazing and i i love the witcher games like i play the, i play the witcher games and um i think they can they can make amazing things it's just with this game they they stuck to their 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 release date and uh, couldn't couldn't cross the finish line with the the team. Well, it's so. interesting because I think you you just said, "Can we get this across the finish line now if we need to?" And I think there was a need that because I I think if you read between the lines, there are there were some leaked emails where the some people who worked at CDPR were talking to journalists a couple of years ago, and they were like, "Oh, the game should come out 2022." So this was like yeah. a year before they released the game and they were ex people working there didn't expect it to be done for another two years. I'm under the impression the reason they released it in the state they did and the reason they insisted on it being on last gen consoles at launch when they're really more of a PC centric dev is that and they didn't even work on the last gen consoles um, is that they needed the money that they, the game had been in. I mean, when was that game announced? 2012? That's the only reason they would yeah. have released it because they had to. They needed the money. It, that's what I was going to say. They got to the point where they're like, we have to start making money and recoup some of these losses or else it's not going to go well. So they got pressure to release it when they did. Somebody put the pressure on them saying, if we don't do this, it's not going to be good for our company. So I, 
I mean, I don't have any proof of that, yeah. but that's what I would that's what I would imagine happened. I mean, if they were originally talking about 2022 and they released it, you know, a year plus earlier, something happened along the way where they may have put too many resources into it early on, where they had a huge. They were in the red, like it was. It must have been huge. So mm-hmm. they were like. Yeah, we we need to be making money or else we're in trouble. So the, the, I I will tell you the one good thing about not the one good thing. There's a lot of good things, but about Funcom is that we do have live games that make us money. So we are mm. able to we are able to work on things because we have games like Conan Exiles and things constantly getting released. So we have multiple streams of revenue at Funcom as opposed to a studio that may just like release one game and then it's gone. Like so, we have games as a service. So a lot of our games have subscriptions or people coming back or we we get new people joining every single day. So it's just it's a little bit different of a model. So as opposed to like let's say you know. Uh, you know, Witcher or something like that. You know, you release it, people play it. It's not like games as a service, so just a little different. They, I, I would imagine they had to recoup their money. Is is what I would guess. You know, what do you think about these rising costs for like super AAA games? I mean, there's some companies like Rockstar where I'm like, yeah, I just I'm I don't doubt them. I'm sure GTA Six is going to be good. It, it will be. And you know what? They've made so much money. Which you bring that up, actually, they're continuing to make money off of GTA Five. And Red Dead Redemption Online that they don't need to worry. They can take their time. And they've one I feel they're one of the few studios where they've scaled the costs up to like, let's be honest, GTA five six is probably gonna have a one billion dollar budget. I mean, oh, yeah. I think it will. It's crazy. And I literally yeah. it will. I think no, I'm this I'm not hyperbole. <laughs> That's my estimate for everyone listening. I think GTA five how many games you have to sell to recoup that cost? Like a hundred million? I don't great. know, because yeah, they'll it, sell it. It has to be so good. So yeah. But, I know I know they will. They're they're the pinnacle triple A studio. So they'll do a great but job. But I don't think it. most studios can be bet on to do that. And I actually think that Rockstar is one of the few game uh studios where for the amount of money spent and again, that's, you know, obviously this verges into opinion here, but for my, for me, Red Dead Redemption 2, it felt like a polished single player experience, except it wasn't. Like the amount of detail in the people you would run into and side quests. And it's like, I feel like when you play a Rockstar game, you see where the money is going. They basically just made <laughs> an open world game where every mission is like a single player game and a smaller. So I, yeah, it's huge. But a lot of studios like, don't accomplish that. Oh, it's it's hard. Yeah, you have it's a lot of time, effort, money, and some studios can't handle that. Some studios are just like, okay, we have enough money and resources to do X, and Rockstar's like, we can build you A through Z with the amount of money and, and resources that we have. So they can add more features, they can polish things. They have they have the team of people and the money to do that. So um, a lot of studios don't. Well, so what do you think about, like, for example, so I, I, on, at this point, actually, I'd say rising game prices is just keeping up with inflation. But, I mean, a lot of people, I think it's like we got to make this a 70 or a $60 game, and then they add 10 sh- side missions no one even plays. Like, I keep thinking, and I've heard some executives talk about this at a few studios, like, can we just make a $50 game that's 10 hours long and we didn't spend half the development time polishing side missions. Like, what do you think about, like, because a lot of these rising costs, I feel like, is everyone trying to be a AAA when maybe they should, maybe AAA's changed. AAA now means $100 million plus budgets. Maybe, maybe just make a $40 game, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the realm that Funcom is in. Most of our games are $40 games. That's what, that's because we understood where we are in the market and what we do. We don't have $60 games at Funcom. So, um, 
we know what we're producing and we know what we ask for out of our, our gamers. And we know that if we give you this, you know, Conan Exiles open world survival experience that if you enjoy yourselves, then, you know, we have all these other DLC packs that you can download if you want it. But if you just want to enjoy the game, it's 40 bucks. So yeah, that, that was what we thought. Um, everybody monetizes their games differently and they have to look at what they're offering people and what people would be willing to spend for what they're offering. So, um, they have people that have specific jobs that do that. We monetization directors and managers, that's their job is to figure that kind of stuff out. And we have one at Funcom and there are every studio has one. So gosh, Reese, why does Windows 10 Professional have to be so expensive? Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great windows and gaming keys you need at cdkeyoffers.com. That includes Steam, Origin, Uplay, PlayStation, PC, and many other keys, including Windows, Microsoft Word, and Professional. Use the offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all of these fancy windows keys and dashing for 3% off everything on the website. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They're a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. Matthew Landavazo writes in and he says, Hi, Tom and Paxton. What are your thoughts on the early access funding model? On one hand, I find it better than pre-ordering to help out a developer, and it provides a lot of playtesting, which seems hard to beat. On the other hand, I like being surprised by a game and its mechanics, and early access kind of takes the mystery of a game away. Early access seems like a safe bet financially, and from the same point that the internet at large can be overly critical of everything, this way they know exactly what they are getting because they helped build it. Thanks again for the great content. I mean, frankly, I would want to jump in and just say, I think early access, not all of them are the same. Like I just played Mountain Blade. I still play Mountain Blade Bannerlord a ton. And it's like, yeah. I'm going to be honest, that game at early access felt more finished than a lot of quote unquote finished games. I right. So you had a good experience with that one then. And it, it depends on where your game's at. And like I, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast that we do early access for our games. We did it with the Isle of Sipta. It worked really well, but you're, you, the guy who gave that question, he's right. Like if you do early access, it loses the, the fun and the excitement of like getting a game when it releases. And, um, the excitement then comes into, okay, all these, this feedback that I gave, did they make the changes? How much better is this going to be this experience? What's new in it? So it's just a different way of looking at it. But we, as developers, we would rather give something in early access so that we can make it the best that it can be for the widest group, the, the broadest audience, I would say. So, yeah. Um, I like early access. Yeah, I mean, because it kind of gets a bad name. It, I don't know. I, I When I look at a game in it, on Steam and it says early access, it's funny. I just go, oh, probably don't want to get that. But I guess if it's a studio I trust, it's like, oh, I have no worries. I'm just getting it for less money sooner than everyone else. It also just depends on the genre of the game. Like if you do an early access, like uh, story driven, you know, single player game, it's, you know, that, that you're, it's going to kind of be ruined for you. But if you're doing some kind of like what we're building is a mm. open world survival game where it's like, okay, 
maybe they'll add on different stuff later on when they, they fully release it. But like, what does this environment look like? It's a little bit different. Like you're not really spoiling too much of it. Um, it depends on the game. Yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, Kickstarter games? Like, for example, I know we have a question here asking about what you think about the fact that like, and I looked it up before we started, there'll be a link in the description. Star Citizen supposedly been in development for a decade. You know, like, what do you think about games that take the money up front in that way without providing anything? I've had no experience with Kickstarter games. I, I've bought plenty of tabletop RPGs that have been Kickstarters, and we've had them in our studio. But when it comes to video games, I, you know, you got to really trust what what the person is. Like, you don't know who's making these games for the most part. They could be promising different things. I've seen so many scam Kickstarters for games that people promise the world, and they can't deliver on that. You know, so you have to look into who's making these games and what they're willing to do. And um, it's it's a, just an interesting model, like the the whole Kickstarter world. Um, I personally have never had experience. Funcom doesn't do it. None of the studios that I've ever worked for have done the Kickstarter model. I think it's more for like the the smaller indie studios or for a few people that have had a really good idea that are are trying to fund it that can't necessarily get any large funding. Um, that's a good option for them to try to get their, their vision out there to the public. So it's just you as a consumer, do you want to roll the dice and see if it actually got, gets, gets produced? Isn't it annoying though, for someone like you, where you sell something to someone and it's like, I hope this is successful. And then you see some Kickstarter games where it's like, they didn't even have to make anything. You just gave them all this money. Is that ever frustrating though? It is because they got paid to work on that game as opposed to us who are kind of like using our funds from other games to fund our new stuff. And we hope that it does well. Um, it's all about the bets that you're willing to, to place on things. Like, are, are we willing to, to put our money behind this idea in this game? And if we are, then we'll put it out there and these people yeah they, they've it is a little frustrating i guess that they they've gotten funding for an idea and and they've it's never been proven like they haven't been proven as developers or um maybe they have i i, I don't know it depends on the situation but um uh, yes it can be frustrating so i i do want to touch on another thing that i think is really important to bring up now that i have you here i mean just the relationship between publishers and developers because I don't, I'm not even sure to ask this question, but it's something that's frustrated me is it always seems like, so people, EA was voted like worst company on earth or something for a few years in a row. And I'm like, I'm not saying I like EA, but does any responsibility come to developers ever, you guys? I mean, like when a game goes wrong, is it, how much of that is like, often the publisher pushing them and how much of that is that it was the developer's job to raise their hand and say, this is going wrong. I mean, I'm wondering what you think about that relationship. Like, yeah, Sometimes your hands suck. are tied, man, as a developer. So we are a developer and publisher right. and we have had EA as a publisher for Funcom. So they were, okay. they published, they published the secret world for us. Um, I don't know, 10 plus years ago. I wasn't part of Funcom then. It was a difficult relationship. So, a lot of times developers' hands are tied and they are at the whim, whim of the one that holds the purse. Mm -hmm. It's one of those type of things. So if a publisher wants to see something or is pushing hard on something, sometimes they, the developers have to do it. I will tell you, we are a publisher, like I mentioned, and we have a very good relationship with our developers. We treat it more like a partnership where we oversee everything, but... If things need to be changed, I mean, we have had to move release dates and we've had to change features and we've tweaked our games because we've realized that 
the development studio wasn't able to do something or wasn't able to deliver. And we, we're not the type of studio that would just pull funding out from somebody if they weren't able to hit a certain milestone. Um, it depends on the relationship between the publisher and the developer. And some of them are really tough. Like I, I feel really bad, but the, um, there was a studio um, in Florida called Darkside Games that I used to work for. I know the owner very well. So I was helping him grow his studio, and he got funding from Microsoft. as a, They were the publisher, mm. and he was going to be doing a, uh, a game with them. They He had a 70-person team, and he, he was halfway done with his game, halfway through. They just pulled the funding, saying, we're going to a, in a different direction. Uh. And he had to let his entire studio go. He let the whole... He put all his eggs in one basket for that. He did not have a good relationship with that publisher where they were willing to to change things and, and listen to him and, and work with him on timelines or deliverables. So it depends on your relationship with that publisher. So we try to have great relationships with all, all of our developers. And right now we're working with three or four developers on some publishing projects. And um, we had such a good relationship with our, our team in Sweden, the Outsiders, um, who are developing a game for us called uh, Metal Hellsinger, which is a rhythm-based shooter, that we purchased the studio uh, mm -hmm. two three months ago. So they are now our, our, our location in Sweden. But we had such an awesome relationship with them that it worked so well that we're like, we just want you as part of our company. Would you be willing to be part of Funcom? And they, they were like, absolutely. So um, it just depends on that relationship. So we try to have good lasting relationships and we try not to push our developers and create crunch cultures and do like, you don't want to do that to a team and a, a, a group. So, um, but it's also like, right. When EA, for example, has mass effect Andromeda come out and it's not, I think this is not controversial for me to say it's not as good. It did not live up to the hype. It was what people were expecting. Yeah. Let's put it that yep. way. Like, uh, it doesn't behoove EA, though, to, like, just close studios and cancel projects. So, like, why do you think that happens? And isn't, isn't, isn't there sometimes, though, isn't there, I, I don't, I don't want to say good, but, like, at what point do you just go, hey, you've been working on a game for five years. It's canceled, man. Like, our job is to pull the plug. You know, obviously that example in Florida was bad, but... Yeah. I mean, they look at it uh, from a business standpoint of how much money they're dumping into something and their return on investment. That's what they're looking at. So they have different criteria than we'd have as a smaller publisher. So they're looking at, you know, they have a financial team that's saying... Hey, we've hit that point right now. Mm. If we keep going, we're not going to be able to get a return on investment here. So they're just, they're not as flexible as some other publishers are, is what I would say. So, like I said, find a, if you're looking for a publisher, find one that has a better relationship than some of these bigger ones um, that would have a better relationship with you. So, but yeah, somebody, like, like you mentioned, somebody at EA said, we need to pull the plug on this project because it's not going to make us money. Yeah, so. and they probably, now that I'm thinking about it, did the math where they're like, not only is it not going to make its money back, but if we think this won't be done in a year, then we'll lose more money not recuperating half of the cost than we will yep. keeping it going. I'm sure someone, someone Some did that. Some financial teams looking at those numbers, absolutely. Um, I, so. I do want to ask you about this because this has been kind of, at least in some of the circles I follow uh, for like gaming news, Online, I heard you guys are owned by Tencent. Is there any concern about, it seems like you work very autonomously, right? And I mean, like you just, I called you and you're like, hey, I'll come on tomorrow or something. Like there's, yeah. there's, there's very, there's a lot of freedom, it seems at Funcom, but like I, I looked it up, I wanted to make sure I got this right. 
Um, there was a recent DreamWorks movie where they just put like the South China Sea dotted line in the background of a map. And, you know, Vietnam, Korea, a lot of countries were like, not cool. We're pulling this movie. But China told DreamWorks, you have to put this South China Sea map in the background of a, of a scene in an animated movie. And, and I've been thinking to myself more and more, like a game I want to see is an open world game in the, like the uh, Chinese warlord period, the early 1900s. It was the Wild West but they were using bootleg Thompsons and World War I weapons. There were warlords and republics all over China. There's the looming threat of the Japanese invading, and they did yeah. eventually. It's a fast, and then you had communists versus nationalists. What a fast, and it's like, it's almost like the Spanish Civil War, but what if it was the Wild West in China with Thompsons? I just like, <laughs> why has cool, no one, <laughs> and it was real. Why has nobody made this game? And it occurred to me, you know, that half of the studios probably wouldn't be allowed to because- then you'd have to acknowledge Chiang Kai-shek went to Taiwan or, you know, that type of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I don't know what pressures would be put on you to do that, but I, that sounds like a fun game to me. Um, but I I will tell you, it's been wonderful working with Tencent. Um, they own a lot of different companies. They they own part of Epic Games and Riot and um, Supercell, Miniclip, I mean, you, Shark Mob. They, they have a lot of studios under their umbrella, and they trust the fact that we know what we're doing. We've been a proven studio for 28 years. They were just so you know the background of Tencent and Funcom. They they, they were on our board for a, a year or so. They they owned about twenty nine percent of our company while while we were making Conan Exiles and these things. And they saw what we were doing with Dune, and they saw what we were going to be working on. And they thought to themselves, "We think they're making the next genre defining survival game. We would like to buy the company." So they outright purchased Funcom. And we are a 100% Tencent company, but they trust the fact that we know what we're doing, and they are very hands-off. I mean, they'll be part of our reviews, and they see what we're working on, obviously, because they pay the bills at times. But um, no, most of the time, it's it's their company. But um, they're very hands-off. Like they don't change management. They don't they they don't tell us who to hire, who to fire. Um, they just kind of look over our games, tell us what they like, and they try to give us support whenever we need support. So if ever we need, you know analytics or monetization help they'll they'll say hey we've got these resources over here we'll help you out so we have a good relationship with tencent um they've never well been and i mean like hostile. if i may the games you're working on are unlikely to be controversial Correct. let's just be honest yes. um but yeah i mean like true. let's I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a scenario in my head where it could pop up though but like what like I, and I, I want to make sure I ask it in the right way because I don't intend gotcha questions or like unfair questions, but it's like, is there? Let's say something came down the pipe and it's like, hey, we want to make sure this message is in the game because of this, or we don't like that this is. You know, there are some games funded by um, owned by Chinese companies where perhaps they're not censoring it directly, but like online you can't type the word Hong Kong, like. Would you push back if they told you, hey, by the way, people aren't allowed to say Tiananmen or something like that? I don't know if we'd ever be in that situation. I we've, We haven't been in that situation yet, so I don't know how our sea level would address something like that. Um, I feel lucky because most of the games that we're producing are within a universe that is controlled like you're not going to deal with china when you're doing a dune game or like it's just you know yeah, but in someone the could type world, online right someone could type tiananmen if they told you you've got to censor the word tiananmen do you think there'd be pushback within funcom or would it would be a discussion like we talk about like why are we doing that like 
you know, I, I know that there would be a bigger discussion and we'd have to talk it out. I'm not saying that we bend the knee or I'm not saying that we would, you know, it's, it, it would be a discussion with their team and figure out why they're asking us to do that. They haven't prior to this. So yeah. what's going on that they're asking us to do it now? What's going on? So, um, that's not something I'm involved I in, know. just so you know. That's a C-level, like our CEO mm-hmm. would be dealing with those type of issues if it ever came down to it. So, um, yeah, I, I can't speak for, for how, how Funcom would deal with that. So, sorry, man. No, I know, but I did. It, it, this was a unique opportunity to ask a question like that. Um, let me move. Yeah, I, I get it. Let me move on to another one then. Brad Medlin writes in. He says, hey there, Tom, and distinguished guest, a few questions. How are game developers using reality capture to better design levels and landscapes of the game? Also, what technologies are they making are making this easier to use? Do studios use third parties to help make the environments? What are the technologies you see making the biggest difference in game development? Is it CPUs like Threadripper or is it the things used to capture the stuff that's rendered? I'll tell you, we got an amazing motion capture and rendering um platform recently it's called xsense the letter x and then s-e-n-s um it is typically when you do motion capture or environment capture you have a trellis with cameras and you have people you know standing Mm -hmm. in there and capturing it that now we have a suit that you put on that captures it all within the suit you don't need cameras it just oh right like kind of like new vr devices too where they just put the camera on there yeah Yep. So it is just a suit that you wear and it puts all your your surroundings and your 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 environment and yourself in the game. I took my team in North Carolina. Just so you know, in North Carolina we're doing the combat uh in the Dune game. Mm-hmm. That's what our team in North Carolina is responsible for, combat and animations. Um my animation director came from Infinity Ward. He's a, an amazing guy. Oh. Um he he worked on all the Call of Duties now. He's, yeah, I've he's heard of running. Infinity Ward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he uh, he's now our animation director, and he he found these XN suits, and we actually took our animation team to a gun range here in the Raleigh area, where we're, we're based out of, and we had our suits on, and we mm. shot all these different types of weapons, and we took all the movements from shooting these weapons, and we're putting them into the Dune game as you like fire, you know, a uh, a smuggler rifle or something funny. Like it it was taken from this XN suit that we had, but it's not it wasn't done through the traditional motion capture camera. Mm-hmm. rigging system it, it's just new technology that allowed us to just go anywhere film something and it's now going to be in the game it made it a thousand times easier so um that's new cool technology we do have environment artists though that that um use the we use the unreal engine at at funcom so they're utilizing the the plugins and the 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 newest latest greatest offerings of the the unreal engine for our environments and they develop things so we have a team of environment artists that actually create assets and environments so yeah um okay and that's interesting too because i think people you take it for granted if you're playing a shooter but it's like in real life a gun makes your shoulder uh, we talked about it earlier a rigger will need to know how the recoil of a gun moves the shoulder of the skeleton and but then your leg actually also moves at the same time a little bit like yeah, having a suit just with cameras all over it, you can just capture all that right there firing a gun. Yep. Yeah, so it was really helpful having a suit that took the recoil that we shot so many different calibers of, of guns, big calibers, small calibers, and just how your body shakes and what happens. And I'm, it, it's going to make the game feel more realistic. So it was just new technology that we were able to use. And it, it, it wasn't nearly as expensive as buying a whole 
trellis and camera system. So it was a fraction of the price, but it was new technology. We were willing to use it, and it's it's awesome. And we could ship suits to all of our like locations. So if our team in Portugal wants to have a suit, they could just record something out, you know, rolling around outside of their office, and we could use that in the game. So it just makes it a lot easier to put, you know, cool things and assets into the game with new technology. Okay, let me ask a few questions about getting into the gaming industry because you gave a presentation at CGS about this and I I mean I'm not looking for a job right now, but I thought the advice you gave was fascinating like you heat mapped resumes based on eyes yeah. like wh what people actually look at when they're reading a resume yeah. so it's really in-depth stuff. Um I mean just in general what is the best avenue to get into either programming or creative directing and gaming? Because I'm assuming these are just entirely different career paths that you probably want to focus on two different things. And I think a lot of people, and I noticed this at CGS because there were several presentations about it there. A lot of people just get into QA and think that's how you get in. And I'm not so sure. I haven't heard that work out for that many people, to be honest. I mean, what, what should people do if they want to make games? People need to find what they're passionate about. If you're passionate about programming, you need to focus on programming. And going into a QA role, if you want to be a programmer, isn't the best avenue. You're right. Typically, our, our QA team members will get industry experience. Sometimes they'll transition onto like a production role, like they'll become a production coordinator or an associate producer or producer, something like that. Um, that's kind of the, the trajectory of, of QA. I have put together an apprenticeship program at our studio where I tried to get people in customer service or QA that had skills other than quality assurance into other roles. So I'll give an example. I, I did have somebody from QA that showed skills in 3D art and he knew how to model. I helped him transition to a 3D artist role and then now he's my technical artist because he came from a background where he knew the Unreal Engine and knew some scripting. So I helped him transition out of that. But that's a that's a unique case, I will say that. So most people, they need to figure out, you know, do I want to be a coder? If they do, they should just learn the language of the engines that they'd want to work in. So if you know that you want to be making mobile games, if you love mobile games, you need to know Unity is probably the best engine for mobile games. Mm -hmm. And what does Unity use? It uses C-sharp. So I should probably learn some C-sharp you know, coding. And, 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 and these engines are free to download now. You could download Unity. You could download the Unreal Engine and just play with it. It's free. So I tell people, you know, you can go to school for programming. That's that's great. Um, I've hired people without degrees because they're competent right. programmers, but they love programming and they know what they're doing. So focus on the languages of the engines that studios are looking for. Um, if you're like, oh, I'm a, you know, I, I do JavaScript. It's like, well, not a lot of studios will use JavaScript. But, but you know, what about you know Minecraft? C++, that was written yeah, in Java. So yeah. why can't I make another? That's an isolated situation. Most studios <laughs> will use a C-based language with their engine. Um, but going back to your original question about like a creative director, you don't just go into the industry becoming a creative director. You start by becoming like a game designer or a level designer or a systems designer, just so you understand what it takes to make a game and, and how to make systems and how to make a level or how to design features in a game. Um, and from there, you can then grow on that skill set and learn other things and then become a creative director. But there are degrees out there for... Um, game design. I, I know that, you know, studios like uh, uh, universities like Full Sail and um, 
Ringling, and there, even here in Raleigh, North Carolina, there's a there's a uh, community college called Wake Tech that I'm I'm partnered with, and I, I love the people over there. They have a game design and simulation associates degree that they offer, and they will teach people the fundamentals of of game design or programming. They'll they'll let them touch on the surface, and they have to make a game at the end of the, the class. And there are programs out there that will help you learn game design and game development if you don't know where to go. Um, you just need to find the right the right university or college. Um, you could do it yourself. Like I said, download an engine, yeah. play around with it. You know, I I, I once was talking with um, the the founder of, of it, and he did Doom, and he was like, people asked him, um, how how did you become a game development? developer and how did you make your own company? He said, I just did it. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I found the time to, to download what I needed to. I learned the languages and I made myself a company. I just did it. Like Some people are afraid to just take that step and try things out. Um, so if you want to get into gaming, find what you're passionate about, find an avenue to, to, to take that passion, whether it's design, programming, art, um, and then do be the best you can be. I tell everybody that, like, just be the best because it's an extremely competitive industry, and we only look for the best when we're hiring at all these studios. And I've hired for a lot of different studios over the years, and we look for the best of the best. So if you're a mediocre artist or programmer or designer, you're probably not going to get a job. That's the reality of it. You have to be the best. Well, it's interesting. So. You say um, that, it, to summarize, it sounds like you're saying just do it, you know, but make sure you're actually doing it, you know? Yeah. Because I think a lot of people, I was talking about this in the Moore's Laws Dead community the other day, like just, there's all these ads, like, you know, Steve Jobs dropped out of college. You know, most people who drop out of college don't actually become CEOs. Right. Like, I don't know that that's good advice. But at the same time, someone I talked to at CGS, who's an uh, indie developer, said he, they use Unity. So it's funny that you mentioned that for um, that type of development as well. And s- at Sony Santa Monica, he said, you know, honestly, I became a VFX artist um, when I just started making good gun packs as DLC for like free DLC, you know, free downloads. And my, f- I went to college for it, but my friend just started making gun packs before me and he got the job at Sony before me. <laughs> like, so it, it does seem like, I'm just obviously you you would know yeah like you know anyone can look to your LinkedIn and see your experience but it is funny like I literally know personal examples of multiple people I've talked to recently everything you just said is what made it work out for them just actually making it doing it yeah. Just do it. Yeah. Like uh, I've hired people that have degrees and I've hired lots of people that don't have degrees. The difference is that all these people just knew what they were doing. They were passionate about it. They understood it. And you have to find out how you get to get, how you obtain that knowledge, whether it's doing it yourself in the basement of your mom's house, ripping apart the Unreal Engine and figuring out how to use blueprints because you want to be some awesome systems designer. That's on you. Or if you want to, if you have the opportunity to go to a university that will teach you how to do it, great. Do that as well. But you have to do it. Like, so it, it doesn't matter as long as you, you figure out what to do and how to do it. Like take the step. If you're passionate about it, follow your dreams and do it. Let me ask you this. What is the biggest misconception you think the general public has when it comes to game development? I know it's a big question, but it's, it's when I like, you know, I asked one dev this and he's like, devs aren't lazy was his thing. You just see it all over Reddit. You know, anytime something yeah. goes wrong, the exam, everyone just says it's because they were lazy. Like that was one answer I've gotten, but like just in general and like managing studios, how studios operate, making games, what big misconceptions do you think are out there that you think should be corrected first? 
it's not easy to make games, man. It's not. People think, oh, I've got this creative idea. I can make. I I, I think we should make a fighting game that does this, 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 and it's not easy to make a game. It takes so many different resources to make a game. It takes time, effort, money, technology. It is, there are so many people that go into making any game it, and, and you need to make sure that you have the right art direction, the right creative direction, the right programming team on board. I mean, we try to find the best people that work well together. I mean, it takes a, it takes the right company culture so that people can work well together to make that game. So I will say it is not easy to make a game. So when people critique games and they say, oh, that was crap, like they really don't know what went into making a game. And it may not be the best game, but it is difficult to make a game. So um, just realize that, that there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of, there's a lot of factors that go into it. There's a lot of, there may be external pressures. You may have a publisher or something that says ship this and you may say, we're not ready. And you have to ship. But from the, again, right from the publisher's perspective, maybe they're like, you've been working on this five years, man. Like what's going on? Yeah. Yep. That's true. And that happens sometimes. So they're like, we're done. And then that was on the, that's on the developer's hands that they did not do things in a timely manner. Um, a lot of times it comes down to proper planning on things. I will say that we, we utilize something at, at Funcom called Scrum. It's a production methodology. It's like agile or waterfall. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever heard of those terms, but we use Scrum. So we probably, we, we try to effectively plan what we're going to be doing. And then we review that every two weeks. And then we plan for the next two weeks and then we review it. We have a big plan of what we're doing over the, the course of the game, but we break it down by two week sprints. So if a studio is not properly planning, they're going to end up in a crunch culture or they're going to, to over scope something and they're going to have to cut things. So it's all about proper planning and making sure that you stay on top of your team without creating a, a hostile environment where, where your people are having to work crazy over time. And that's one thing that I love about Funcom is that we're a Norwegian based company and we have Scandinavian values and we have a great work life balance. And we, we, t- we do not have a crunch culture. Everybody works like 40 hours a week. And, and even if you were to work on a Saturday for some random reason, we give you that back as comp time. So it is a nice, it's a, it's an amazing environment. Um, and it's very different from a, a normal studio that has that kind of crunch culture. And I do think a lot of that attributes to poor planning. Mm-hmm. So I will say that. Yeah, because I mean, like, I, I there, there's I have two feelings about it. Right on the one hand, this is a industry of passion. You know, this is like, do people are going to play this? And also, I like it. So because I like it, I want to make sure it's perfect. Because I I like it. I want what I like to be perfect. Yeah. You know, so I think people are going to throw themselves into working long hours, probably without being asked to half the time. I think that's unavoidable to a certain extent if you care about something. Like I'm someone who makes podcasts, videos. I can assure people that there are days I work 12 hours because I want that video to be perfect. No one made me do it. But at the same time, if it's constant crunch, you would go, well, so if it's constant, that means it's predictable. What are you, what are you doing wrong with planning though? Right. They are probably planning on the fact that their team is crunching. When at Funcom, there are people absolutely that will will put in extra hours. I mean, I do it myself because I love the company and I love what I'm doing. But you don't want to have the culture where you expect that out of people, mm. and you're saying, "No, you can't go home and have dinner with your family because we have planned for you to be here for these long hours." Like you don't want to be part of a culture that will do that to you. It's it's like one of those nice things where it's like, "Wow, you're here," and and you. Like I absolutely recognize when people work above and beyond and people get, 
you know, increased pay if they do that kind of stuff. But like, it shouldn't be expected upon mm-hmm. people. I think that's the difference. As as a production team member, you should not plan on your studio constantly crunching and destroying people's work life balance. So, yeah. All right. For fun, I got kind of like a final question here. Then, sure. you know. This usually is mostly about gaming hardware. Of course, with you, I wanted to ask questions I couldn't ask, you know, the typical like person at AMD or Intel designing chips. But you have to admit, you've been following gaming. You must have noticed in the past few years and going into next year, technology is getting way better faster again. Like, I feel like there was some stagnation about 10 years ago and like every everything was just a quad core for 10 years, let's be honest. And, and now we just have... 16 cores, Intel's about to release a 16 core to desktop. They're going to release a 24 core next year. AMD is bringing out, I mean, technically, if you count Threadripper, AMD, you can buy a 64 core processor. Crazy, man. Like, and and the latest graphics cards are very powerful. And as far as like I have can communicate based on talking to people at NVIDIA and AMD next gen, next year, they're going to double performance again, as far as I can tell. They're just going to double it again. What? And I mean, now SSDs, not just SSDs, but next gen SSDs are standard in consoles. Like what, what do you make of like the creativity that you can do with this extra performance? Like, what are you expecting to be done with doubling performance again next year? And is there this feeling at, you know, when you talk to people like actually working on the games that like, oh, we can do more because of how quickly things are innovating again. Absolutely. Um, But I'm guessing that's where your your podcast came from. Moore's Law is dead. The whole uh, doubling every two years, right? And yeah, because it certainly it didn't for like 20 yeah. years, right? So I get it. So that, that it makes sense. So, um, but at at Funcom, I mean, increased technology will allow us to render things faster. I will tell you, most of the hard drives we're putting in our systems mm-hmm. are all SSDs now. We get, we buy like four four oh, yeah. terabyte SSD cards. I mean, we have to if we're we're building these big games. So it's like. The better hardware that we have, the faster that we're going to be able to render, the faster that we're going to be able to put things in place, the faster that our games are going to be produced. So as long as we don't add on more features and stuff, but like technology helps us, it doesn't hurt us. So the more that, that's why I say we're trying to get the latest and greatest GPUs. We're trying to get as many, you know, SSDs as we can in in all of our systems so that things run faster, things run smoother. Like that's what we're trying to get. It's just hard to get that type of stuff now. Um, with the environment right now and, and through retail sources. So, um, but technology is here to help us and we're going to use it the best we can to make our games better and, and build them faster and, and do cooler things. So is it less about graphics and more about just being able to make a game more efficiently and quicker? Cause I know solid state drives alone have finally removing hard drives and how you had to manage data, I'm sure made <laughs> yeah. all that quicker. It does. It may, it's so much easier having SSDs and everything. And it, it makes accessing that information so much faster and allows us to, to do things. Like I know my animators when they're, when they're using Maya or Max, they're like, Oh my gosh, it's so much easier having things quickly available to me on the SSD, as opposed to like the old school, you know, hard drives that is like, okay, I'm waiting forever to, to, to bring something over or, or to render something. So it just, it helps out with technology and, and it's helping us make better games. Okay. Like what do you what do you expect out of ray tracing? Is Dune is the Dune game going to have ray tracing? <laughs> like cuz I think ray tracing is kind of a mixed bag in terms of like is it really going to become the standard as quickly as people think? I don't know if you can speak to like that. No, no, no. We we haven't really talked about what we're doing in the game uh with Dune yet just because 
Yeah, we we don't know what we're doing with ray tracing. It, it's a topic of discussion. We we have been looking at it. We're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. Um, I know everybody does things differently, but we're trying to figure out if it works for our performance and 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 our game. So uh, we're not we're not announcing that one yet. But it sounds like it's not as simple as oh, it's here. Let's just put ray tracing. Oh no no, in. no, no. it's it's not a flip a switch. No, it it's it it affects everything. It affects lighting. It affects um, the the um, decals, the assets that we create. I mean, it's it's it affects everything it's it's not a f- simple flip of a switch so we need to we need to decide will this increase performance decrease performance what does it do for the the look of the game so it, it, there's a lot of factors that are involved and what does it mean for our programming team what do we have to do differently so um we're taking that into consider- consideration but uh it's not as simple as let's just use it because it's interesting i was talking no. or there's an interview with the demon souls devs for the new ps5 remake yeah and they were like you know, we considered ray tracing, but we thought that our existing lighting system looked better and didn't crush performance. And to be, I honestly think the latest Demon Souls is some of the best lighting I've seen in a game. It's absolutely mesmerizing and it doesn't have ray tracing, you know? Right. Yep. It's, it depends on, on what your team can do, what you already have and, and are you willing to, to tweak things to make it, to make it work? So, yeah. All right. Well, but we'll we'll announce what we're doing. So we have some really unique things that we're building in this game that's very different. But uh, it's it's a pretty amazing game, this Dune game that we're building. I can't wait for people to see it. And uh, you know, hopefully in the next couple months, we're gonna we're gonna do some kind of trailer. That's the that's Ooh. the plan. Well, yeah, yeah. Let me say this too. You know, I think you can tell how good something's going to be. Half of it's just what's the enthusiasm on the employees you're talking to. Like, especially oh, when yeah. I like leak stuff about hardware, it's like, yeah, I don't know. The people at AMD seem really sure this new graphics card is going to be good. They just can't stop smiling. So, and the enthusiasm I see out of you <laughs> for Dune, at least this, yeah. It, it, it's exciting, man. Yeah. We're building a world-class team. I mean, a lot of our team members came from other AAA studios, or some of them have been part of Funcom for a while, but people that understand how to make great games. Like I mentioned, our, our animation director came from Infinity Ward, and, and um, my uh, my lead designer was on America's Army, was over, he worked on Fallout 76 over in uh, Maryland. So, I mean, he's he, the world-class developers are now part of this project um so a lot of people from ubisoft have been working on this game so it's 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 amazing what we're building and i cannot wait for the uh, the world to see it so all right well i yeah. know you have a meeting you're a very busy person and you were generous enough to meet with me on pretty short notice for this but i mean i i hope everyone who listened to this um enjoyed it i mean i think this was at least a pretty unique conversation for gaming circles and um yeah i mean uh, I want to thank everyone for listening, and I'll let you. Uh, You've mentioned it a few times, but what do you want to plug? <laughs> what do I want to plug? Uh, Funcom, if you want to get into game development, we are an amazing game development studio that focuses on work life balance and a great culture. And we have some amazing projects with Dune and Conan and some stuff in the works right now. So if, if you're thinking about getting into game development, you could always link in with me. Um, I always accept uh, link in requests. So feel free to do that if you see my, my name on LinkedIn. And uh, connect with me. And if you ever wanted to get into gaming or have any questions, you could reach out to me. Yeah, and there will be a link in the description for people who want to do that. Um, all right. Again, thank you for coming on. Right. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. All right. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Laws Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Laws Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, 
Dan. Audio editing by Gerard Cortez and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it, and so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yacht, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Al-Kawari, Frederick Lau, MetroCore, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Heron, Drita Full, Phil S, D31337 Antics, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegard, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Levo King Kilo, Fatboy Deseru, Daniel Hyde, A Guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Co-Addict, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Matthew Landavazo, My Name is Nobody, Judson N, Elethros, Jensen Wang, Hey There's a Kitty, Great T. Wancho, Ivan214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, John Ronner, Chris Licata, Michael McGee, Ali Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Groh, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Anthony Gareffa, Joachim Hagen, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S. Blake, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Endless Loggins, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Zoot Suit Taylor, Trevor Powerstu, Alenian, Don Nan, Daniel Nishball, Franco Frederick, Dan Galinowski, Alex Karasteel, Dark Rain 2049, Leighton Perry, Joseph Kerman, Brett Summers, Jed Y, Denovan Russell, Noah Nicolella, Zlicky, Matt Porsche, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Ulan, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canos Jr., Stefan Coates, Kiwi Phil, Dehuhu, Sarah Light, Mitchell Pell, Brett Summers, Eddie Del Castile, Josie Floria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Ringelman, Justin Gower, Caillou Markelli, Dave McCoy, Valcom Alev, Gabe Langner, Rodney, Kulik, Souza, Michael Deaton, MJB1, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Scott Ref Schneider, Mai Sharona, Y True, Roman, William W. Draper, Air Rats, Wakir Kant, Henry Zhang, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amiable Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, Kevin Chen, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpit Sharma, Meat and Pork, Jimmy NG, Mads, Gordon Freeman, Benjamin Oshley, Jijitz, Shield TV, Couteau, Aaron, John Wissink, Sam Benzel, Mark Mitchell, Bircho, Jeremy So, James Anderson, Jesse, Jess Kowiak, Ian Clifford, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. 